0: instead of focusing on winning arguments we're teaching the basic fundamentals of sales and marketing and how we can use them to win in the world of politics teaching you how to meet people where they're at on the issues they care about welcome to the brian nichols show well happy wednesday there folks brian nichols here on the brian nichols show and thank you for joining us on of course another fun-filled episode what is going on in the world of foreign policy specifically joe biden's foreign policy we're gonna dig into that in a second but before we do I have to go ahead and give a special shout out to today's sponsor and yes that is the one the only expat money show summit which you can go ahead and find at briannickelshow.com forward slash expat yes you can go ahead and watch for a week reap the benefits Four Generations, November 7th through 11th is where you can go ahead and find this virtual summit. Five days, 30 expert speakers. Go ahead and grab your free tickets today at BrianNicholsShow.com. So we're going back to the world of foreign policy today, and uh, we're going to have a returning guest. She is a professor over in Rochester, and she is joining us today to talk about what is going on with Joe Biden's foreign policy. Sarah Burns, welcome back here to the Brian Nichols Show.
1: Thanks for having me, Brian.
0: Absolutely, Sarah. Thank you so much for uh, returning here to the program, and we're looking forward to digging into what on earth is going on in the world of Joe Biden's foreign policy, because a lot's happened since you were last on the show here back in February of 2021. It seems like it was a different era, and yet it wasn't really that all too long ago in the the distant past. So before we go into what's happened since we last connected, let's do a quick reintroduction. Who are you and and what brought you into this world of foreign policy that you find yourself in?
1: Hi, I'm Sarah Burns. As Brian said, I'm an associate professor of political science at Rochester Institute of Technology. I work on American constitutionalism and foreign policy decisions. And I got into foreign policy because I was looking at war powers and the fact that presidents have so much power in the realm of war and we are continuing to see that today although joe biden is getting a lot of assists from congress now for his his efforts in ukraine and we'll see what happens with um finland and sweden getting involved in nato and just say nothing of taiwan and what's going on there
0: (laughs) just there's just a few things that are on the (laughs) list to discuss i know we were we were sitting down we're like what should we talk about today and it's like well a lot's happened since we last had you on the show. And a lot of it has happened very, very quickly. Um, Let's start things off with I think and this is one of the things we talked about first because I think for the the folks in the audience who are in more the, the Liberty School here they probably liked this from Trump and they maybe liked this from Biden maybe not so much the way that Biden went about it and that is the uh, number one walking back from Afghanistan but number two the leaving of billions of dollars of equipment behind and now you see Afghanistan has been taken back over by the Taliban Sarah what happened with the Biden uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question and such a tragic one because you also have just immense human suffering now under the Taliban and all of the people who helped us, who were trying to move the country in a different direction are now either under attack or have had to flee the country when really what they wanted to do was stay. Furthermore, you have a bottlenecking of immigration into the United States, even though, again, these are people who genuinely helped us to try and create a future for Afghanistan that wasn't quite so uh, religiously conservative and um, arguably backwards from the rest of the world or looking away from the rest of the, of the liberal international system. Mm. So it was always going to be a problem pulling out. There's, there's almost no good way to end a war effectively. If you're saying, well, we're just leaving and we're not having any troops stay behind. There isn't an example in U S history where we've done that. And it's been, clean and, um, uh, blood free. Uh, that said at some point you really had to pull the plug. It was a 20 year engagement. You know, there was no justification for staying any longer. There wasn't really justification for staying much past 2003 or 2004 when we realized that we weren't going to be able to create a legitimate Western style liberal democracy in Afghanistan. And you just had, you know, administration after administration double down or triple down or quadruple down. So I admire Biden for taking the the hit politically. And it's tragic that all of this is happening to a group of people who have been run over by empire after empire with no, (laughs) you know, not asking for any of this themselves. So uh, it's it's too bad that it ended the way it did, but it did need to
0: end at Mm. some point. Well, and I guess that opens up the question to the next um, topic, and that is probably the the one that's hit everybody's uh, TV stations, it's hit everybody's news feeds, and that is the war in Ukraine. You can't scroll on social media without seeing a Ukraine flag in somebody's social media profile picture or, or headline. So um, we see it looks like Biden acknowledged what we we understood was the flaws in Afghanistan and then in some respects do (laughs) an exact 180 with Ukraine and now we're sending just oodles of of cash and weapons over to Ukraine. The most recent figure that we just saw that we just uh, gave was $40 billion uh, over to Ukraine. So, We're seeing right now Ukraine has become essentially the eastern front to combat the big bad Russian foe. Uh, And it seems like right now we have this this schism between the folks who are saying, listen, if we want this Ukraine-Russian war to end, there has to be some concessions on both sides, whether we like that or not. The other saying... Nope, we have to keep going, and uh, you know, just outlast Putin, or maybe get rid of Putin. Sarah, what are your thoughts on this this Ukrainian Russian conflict, and where do you see this actually ending? Another small
1: question, Brian. I, I mean, know, right? Simple to answer. Uh, so i I'm sympathetic to people who say there have to be concessions on both sides. The reason I say that is because the idea that we're going to have a protracted conflict in Ukraine in order for Ukrainians to regain uh, even Crimea, which is what uh, Zelensky just said either yesterday or today, I can't recall now, seems unlikely. I I say that in part because I do think that Western powers, the United States in the Pacific, should have a sense of like, this is our our tipping point, right? Where we say, all right, we've supported you. We will support you. You absolutely have a right to territorial integrity. You know, maybe we did the wrong thing in 2014 by allowing Crimea to fall. You know, that seemed like a calculated risk and a a necessary one at the time. But to say now in 2022, well, we have to get all of Ukraine back and all of Ukraine back into Ukrainian hands, I think opens the door to uh, continued insurgencies in the Russia-facing and uh, Russian-backed and Russia-inclined areas in the East and in Crimea. Uh, in the east of the country, in the Donbass. So saying that means that, you know, you're going to have a protracted conflict if you don't give up anything to uh, Russia on the on the Ukrainian side. And at the same time, if you give up everything to Russia or everything that Russia's currently looking for, which is a land bridge between Crimea and, and Russia, that feels extremely dangerous for Ukraine. So I don't think that you can go that far with Russia, where they would, like I said, have a land bridge between Russia and uh, Crimea, which would cut off the Ukrainians from uh, from the Black Sea, which would be horrifying for their economy. At the same time, Crimea is fairly Russia-facing, is fairly inclined to be part of Russia. Is it 80 or 90% like they say in the polling? I don't think so, right? I don't trust that polling. But similarly in the Donbass, there are people who really do want to be connected more strongly with Russia, so I don't think that it's realistic for the West to continue supporting Zelensky if Zelensky, um, uh, if he says that he has to have uh, all of Ukraine back mm-hmm. into Ukrainian hands.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and also, elephant in the room, Russia's is still the, the largest nuclear power in the world, if I'm not mistaken. They have the largest wep- uh, weapons arsenal, if, if, right? Is that correct? Um, it's either the largest or the second largest. So Still scary, right? Not not a good thing. Like, I I, I don't yeah. think anybody wants to be poking the bear either way of a nuclear power, especially when, if the rumors are true that Vladimir Putin is kind of, you know, just going out on his you know, last hurrah, if that is the case, would we necessarily think that he would not hit the button just because? Like, I, I don't want to find out, and I don't think... Anybody really wants to get to the point that we find out. And to your point, that may require us to, and I i saying this on a show again, overtly in the Liberty crowd. We want it to uh, yield more, more peace talks, less tensions, and, and get away from the, the nuclear turmoil that just seems around the corner. I mean, that's the, the proverbial uh, minute to midnight clock that they've had for the past, you know, 60, 70 years of how close we are to the end of the world, the doomsday. And uh, it just seems like we're a millisecond away at this point because um, you do have each side seemingly poking each other and. Now what, right? Like when you're at that stalemate, what what's going to be the, the straw that breaks the camel's back? I don't think anybody wants to be around to find out.
1: No, I, I don't think we do. And I think that's partially why you really have to think about the the horrible choices that are going to have to be made in Ukraine and to a certain extent in Russia. Because we really have broad international consensus that you cannot use nuclear weapons. The reason we have that is because everyone knows as soon as you get great powers engaging with each other, the temptation to go nuclear is going to be too much for at least one side. Mm-hmm. If the temptation's enough for one side, that's that's the ballgame, right? That's literally the earth-shattering existential crisis ballgame. So you really don't want to find out what even tactical nuclear weapons would look like in a conflict, because that opens this Pandora's box of, well, you know, if Russia can do it once, maybe we can also do it. Maybe, you know, the Chinese could do it against the Taiwanese or something like that to try and diminish an insurgency in Taiwan if they, you know, felt like invading as they are flirting with now. Right. (laughs) Um, So, you know, this is not, this is not a world that we want to go back to. This was the cold war world that my parents lived through where, you know, they would be doing drills and sitting under their desks as if, you know, the atoms in their body would be just fine if a nuclear bomb hit because they're under a desk. Right. This is I mean, this is a, a, a world that we very happily left in the 1990s, and it would be such a tragedy if we went back to it.
0: Oh, it would be an absolute tragedy, and uh, I think there's two tragedies on this front. There's the Russian tragedy, and you hinted at the part I wanted to go to next, and that is, yes, what is happening over in Taiwan, but First, Yes, we want to go ahead and uh, quickly direct our YouTube viewer as well as our audio listeners' attention towards our morning sales huddle. Head over to BrianNicholsShow.com and sign up for not just the morning sales huddle in your inbox once per week by yours truly, which it is the proven sales tips and tricks and methods that I taught my sales teams to help them hit their sales numbers and lead to sales success. Interested? Not only will you get that, but you'll also get four easy steps you can implement now to help sell Liberty to friends and family my free new ebook it will be in your inbox as well one more time bryannickelshow.com sign up today all right sarah so taiwan china it's getting a little weird it's getting a little rough you had uh, joe biden right joe biden saying um you know yes we will we will defend china with military uh, and that's something he did not say about ukraine and China, too, also happens to have some nuclear weapons. So what's what's going on? It, it, we're getting to this point. I mean, I don't want to be that guy, but, like, you have a two-front war almost, it seems like, here. It, I don't want to say World War Three, but, goodness gracious, the, the rhetoric seems to be pointing that way, Sarah.
1: Yes, it does. Um, and so hopefully your readers have, you know, uh, cute animal friend videos that they can watch after this to try and calm down a little bit. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, Biden did unequivocally say, uh, he was at, I would encourage you guys to go and look at the, the footage of the, of the moment because he's asked by a reporter and Joe Biden has a bit of a foot and mouth disease, uh, kind of issue where he just kind of says the wrong thing. And then his press secretary and people have to backtrack. But in this instance, it was the shocking moment where a reporter says to him, you know, would you support Taiwan? if china invades militarily, or if china invades and he says yes yep. to which the reporter then seems like she's not she was, wasn't accepting the answer <laughs> he's kind of like wait wait did you just did you just say that clearly and you know decisively and you're not you know hedging language there's no well that would change my calculation or you know we're looking at it or we're reviewing things nothing's off the table these are the sort of um phrases that politicians and american presidents use so that they can give themselves a maximum amount of wiggle room. So he's giving himself no No, no. wiggle room, which is both, again, a great strategy in principle, because it's saying very clearly to the Chinese in, you know, big shining letters, you are not, (laughs) you are not allowed to flirt with this. You are not allowed to do anything about this. And what's very interesting, if you look, because obviously Biden is still Mm -hmm. responsible to us, the, the American people. If you look at polling data, Americans are very supportive of supporting Ukraine with the military, but not actually engaging in a military operation in Ukraine. Conversely, Americans since 2020, uh, we can probably see a correlation here with something else, but I'm not going to, I don't know for sure if the, the pandemic is the reason that we see this shift. But starting in 2020, you see Americans Uh, being much more supportive of the idea of the U.S. engaging militarily if the Chinese did invade Taiwan. So you see it go from roughly 40 or 45 percent of Americans supporting U.S. military intervention to something like 60 or 70 percent. I don't have the numbers, I'm sorry, in front of me, but it's something very high and very surprising and very new, right? So again, maybe it's the pandemic, maybe it's other moves that China's made, but we see a decided shift in the American public when it comes to military intervention in Taiwan, that I would hope, you know, the combination of the clear language from Biden, and then they have the internet just like we do, so they can see that there's a sufficient support for this action in the United States. I would hope that that would signal to China that this is not, that the juice is not worth the squeeze our difficulty sometimes though is we'll say things uh, that are we'll say things that we interpret as these are defensive measures and they will be interpreted as offensive measures to our adversaries or you know partner type people
0: when it begs the question this this kind of popped in my mind so why the the rampant defense of of taiwan is it because and i think i know the answer because they are per- pretty much HQ for any and all semiconductors and any real advanced technologies being produced there. Um, but is is that pretty much the, the ultimate reason of why we are so adamant on defending Taiwan?
1: That's likely the government's reason. I would think that the people's reason or like the American people who may not be as uh, versed in, <laughs> you know, international supply chains, their support, I think, relates to the fact that they see Taiwan as an independent country. So even though the American government officially recognizes the one one China policy, meaning that Taiwan is officially and for all diplomatic purposes, a part of China, at the same time, we engage with them to a meaningful extent as an independent nation, both uh, diplomatically and financially. We just never say they're an independent nation. And I, I know that's a complicated thing to say, but I just um, present that because it's important to realize that there's kind of like a diplomatic wink-wink thing happening where de facto um, it's independent, but de jure, it's actually part of China. So I think in American, American minds, Taiwan is an independent country. So therefore, if China invaded, even though China could claim legitimacy that it's just you know uh, reinforcing its control over this island, Americans say, no, that would be equivalent to or very similar to the Russians invading Ukraine. So that's why the support is there in the case of Taiwan. And the government support, as you mentioned, is pro- is likely related to the incredibly important uh, role that Taiwanese play in the international supply system. Um, the other thing I'll mention is there was a perspective that everyone agreed would work very well with Hong Kong being in but not of China. So it would be similar to to Taiwan but slightly different because obviously it's it's just a city rather than a whole island and therefore a whole nation. And Beijing's consistent desire to crack down on Hong Kong I think has also led to disillusionment on the fact that we could have an independent country mm-hmm. or an independent-ish entity within the Chinese country. So I think all of those things combined, so the pandemic, um, the Taiwanese, uh, the important place Taiwan uh, the important uh, role Taiwan plays in the international supply chain, and then the the obvious problems that we have seen with Hong Kong, all of those things, I think, have come together to make people more supportive of U.S. military intervention in Taiwan, which would hopefully then uh, decrease the likelihood because China would know, you know, that is World War Three, right? That is uh, starting a military operation with the United States. And their military... I'll say this carefully. They have a huge military. They're arguably the second largest military in the world. However, unlike our military, they have not been tested in major battles. That means that once you start something up, you might have logistical and strategic issues, um, say nothing of tactical issues, that can make it very difficult for them to succeed, even if they outman us, out supply us, and all these other things, or and or catch us off guard.
0: See, I... I'm glad you brought up Hong Kong because you actually took down the notes. Are you looking at my notes, Sarah? Yeah. Um, because I said, well, what, what happens if China invades Taiwan? And I used Hong Kong in my notes here as the example because we saw there was a lot of support for Hong Kong when the protests were happening across the world, it seemed. And then all of a sudden COVID happened and the COVID, or the protests just disappeared and all of a sudden, you don't hear about the, the Hong Kong protests anymore. And I ask you this because, I mean, we saw how quickly China was able to just to move forward. They dominate the, the global economy in, in a lot of different areas. I mean, you see Hollywood has really kowtowed a lot to, to, to China, NBA. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's insane when you see how much really control they, they have ultimately been able to, to uh, garner over the past few decades. And, I ask, you know, will they be able to seemingly Hong Kong Taiwan with just the amount of really, I don't want to say the the control they have, but ultimately it does come down to control the influence that they've been able to garner just by the sheer strength of their dollars?
1: Yeah, it's it's a very good question. I would say to me, there are important differences between Hong Kong and Taiwan. One, Hong Kong obviously has this long history, as your listeners uh, or viewers may know, it was a a British protectorate, I think is the term it had. So for 100 years, the British were controlling Hong Kong, and then the handover was in 1997. So Hong Kong's only been part of China for the last, you know, two and a half, uh, 25 years, roughly. Comparatively, Taiwan has been arming itself and preparing for a Chinese invasion since Chiang Kai-shek fled there in 49 when, the, when, they, when he lost the civil war to Mao. So Taiwan has been ready for the threat from China from day one, and the U.S. has been predominantly supportive of Taiwan's quasi-independence to the point where we regularly supply them with military um, infrastructure. We regularly supply them with trainers for their military so they are much larger also. I think Taiwan, I want to say it's 60 million people, but it might be 30, uh, so we can look that up. Uh, because there's such a large population compared to Hong Kong, which is still just a city, the capacity for an insurgency and the capacity for just draining China over a decade or two, like we were drained in, in Afghanistan, is a very, very likely outcome. Because the Taiwanese are not going to just uh, you know, give up fly the white flag and give China uh, control. They do also think of themselves as an independent country. They do also think of themselves as having a unique identity as Taiwanese. So much like the Ukrainians post 2014, the Taiwanese have thought of themselves (laughs) as a distinct culture that is not Chinese, that is not not, uh, able to be absorbed by the Chinese since 1949, roughly, maybe 1970s, depending on your perspective. So I think that the Chinese not only see strong uh, American support, at least I'm not not sure about Western allies, strong American support, but they also see the very real possibility of a being bled the way that Russia is being bled uh, if they go in. Right. And even if they have like overwhelming force, which they do compared to Taiwan, Taiwan uh, is prepared for that kind of invasion, even more so than Ukraine was. So like I would compare Taiwan to how prepared the Baltic states are Mm. for war. They've been really ramping up and really capable of uh, using sophisticated mobile technology to ensure that any way the Russians want to attack them, if they do, they would be able to mobilize and uh, shift their military power to that point or those points. So I think Taiwan is at that same level of military preparedness. And that's... I don't want to say a good thing because i don't think we should encourage this military industrial complex but insofar as they've been threatened by china since 49 i i'm completely understanding of why it is that they have such a large military build-up
0: all right sarah here comes the fun question i get to ask and uh, because we have talked about really the three major areas that would identify the biden foreign policy here over the past few years so what's the report card grade for uh, President Biden thus far, specifically looking at a, a foreign policy perspective?
1: Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. And I should have thought of that being a professor. You know, I, I should think of people as like A, B or C students um, or D students, but we try to ignore those because they make us sad for America's future. <laughs> um, so I guess I'll, I'll talk it out and then see where I, I, I feel like he lands. My difficulty with Biden is he's also an he's definitely an elder statesman and he's also a former cold warrior. So when you're thinking about how he's going to view the world, he's going to view it as this is my legacy. Uh, we're returning to great power. We're returning to great power struggles. You know, how should I respond to that? And so I I think it was a really good idea to pull, up, pull out of Afghanistan, even though it was messy. So I'll give him like a B on that because um, so I'm going to do it Piece by piece. Yep. So I'll give the B on, on Afghan, Afghanistan because yes, he had to do it, but he did it really poorly. And I really feel like the state department could have been ramped up much better so that you would have people in place to help process visas, to help uh, get the American public to be sympathetic to these people, the way that the American public seemed to be naturally very sympathetic to the Ukrainians, right? We look at the, the comparative response to Ukraine refugees versus uh, Afghan refugees and, you know, we're not going to get into it, but this is night and day, right? Um, even though we caused the Afghan refugee crisis. I digress. The point is so, this is, so that's like a B, right? There's some good things about it. There's other things that aren't so great. Uh, on Ukraine, I would give him at least an A minus, if not an A. I think you do need to be the leader who brings NATO together, who says we are standing behind Ukraine but we're not going to use the American military because American military in Ukraine is world war three. Taiwan. I mean, like I said, I've looked into the numbers a little bit. So seeing that the American public supports that kind of action, I think it's a little more understandable that he used that definitive language. Uh, But I, I worry that it's going to be interpreted offensively, meaning that the Chinese are going to say, well, we're going to get into a war with America over Taiwan so we better do it now rather than wait when the Taiwanese defense system and like the American support for the Taiwanese defense system has been ramped up due to all of the Chinese rhetoric so I'd give
0: him like an A minus B plus on the on that situation so let's see we got B (laughs) A minus A A minus B plus I mean I'm not the professor here but I would say that probably in your estimations like an A minus B plus across the board yeah um and, and you know, you know I, a student right? Yeah.
1: but not hitting it out of the park
0: and and I mean, I, I would say of the things you've listed off here, I mean Afghanistan, I think my audience would agree with you hundred percent that that might easily be like the the best thing he's done the the means in doing it not so great, right? but the acting to your point of him actually having to do it. I think we'll definitely have a little bit of uh, you know areas of, of disagreement there on Russia, Ukraine, China, and Taiwan, but I think it's more so because a lot of uh, the the folks here in the Liberty Movement we just tend to be more of the uh, the non-interventionist camp in general. So uh, we're more like, can we just please? Hang out here instead of sending forty billion dollars overseas. Have you gone to downtown Philadelphia yet? Go drive there and look at the potholes. And oh, by the way, just make sure you duck because it seems like the drive-by shooting every other day at this point. Partly why I left. Um, but again, night my turn to digress. But uh, no, Sarah, I think we we are seeing. Um, yeah, this is a one area that of a very blemished black eye presidency. Uh, this seems to be the one area he has not done being President Biden. Um, he has not done as poorly as others, especially when you look at the, you know, to your point, the way that a lot of Americans feel on these issues. Yes, Americans knew we had to get out of Afghanistan. Do we like the way it was done? No, but they understood it had to be done. Um, I think you look at to your point, a lot of folks do have that, you know, that empathy towards Taiwan. Do they necessarily know what that will entail when it comes to actually Exactly. Having military uh, involved in there, probably not. So I believe we're going to see a lot of this kind of shape out a little bit more over the next few years. And uh, who knows? I mean, 2022 could really change the tenor of our foreign policy, especially if Congress ends up flipping um, more towards the Republican. And, And then obviously 2024 is going to be A very pivotal year. Uh, Biden is going to have to stand on his accolades and and really stand on his history and and his foreign policy that he's been able to accomplish over the past four years. And the Republican candidate is going to be able to point out those weak spots that uh, we talked about here today. So very interesting stuff that we're going to obviously be mapping out here in Sarah. We'll make it a point to make sure we have you on sooner rather than later uh, next time so we can stay more up to date versus having uh, three life-changing events and world-changing events happen in less than a year and a half uh, time. So with that being said, Sarah, final thoughts here for the audience. And of course, where can folks go ahead and support you and continue the conversation if they feel so inclined?
1: Uh, Great. I'd say final thoughts. You know, this is, this is a changing world. Um, One of the ways that people talk about this is um, there's a forum called the Davos forum uh, in Davos, Switzerland, where everyone kind of gathers and says like, aren't we great because we have this international Uh, economic cooperation and interdependence, and there's never going to be anything bad that happens. And so once you have Russia invade Ukraine, you see the entire international economic system uh, panic, right? Because the entire economic system is based on the idea that nothing very, very bad is going to happen. So when you have events like 9-11 and you have events like Russia invading Ukraine, that sends a shock to the entire system which diminishes the likelihood of economic integration, which I would net say is a bad thing for the world, right? It's very, very good to have economic integration. It's very good to have more developed countries uh, engaging in uh, developing countries, especially because that nicely counters the Russian belt and road initiative that may be just a way to get uh, poorer countries into debt to China. I digress. The point is economic integration is a great tool for the liberal international world order that's gentle and non-military. So when we have these big shocks like this, like Ukraine, uh, like Ukraine getting invaded, that can make everyone be too risk averse. So many people are pulling out their investments in developing nations, and they're reassessing the, the value of that and thinking maybe more we should just integrate, say the Western allies and some Asian countries, rather than taking more riskier investments. So this is always a bad thing. So I would say I would hope people would cut against that and would still see the value to the international interdependent economic order. That being said, you know, using the military or trying to use the military to enforce that or to push people towards other kinds of political systems. I don't think that's a good use for for our system, uh, for the military. Anyway, Uh, as for me, I have a website called SarahMBurns.com. Otherwise, you can find me at RIT. My email address is very easily available. Uh, it's just Sar- Associate Professor uh, Sarah Burns. I'm on Twitter as Sarah McKenzie B. I'm not terribly interesting, though. And then otherwise, uh, you can find me on Facebook. I am myself, this space, and then my name.
0: Awesome. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for your insight today and what we'll do, folks. We'll include all those links there on uh, today's episode. So all you have to do, if you're uh, listening today, uh, to today's episode on your podcast, just click the artwork there in your podcast catcher. It'll bring you right to com, where you can find not only today's episode, yes, all those links, also, the entire transcript of today's episode. Oh, and by the way, you can find the uh, the link to the video version of today's show, which is going to be found over on YouTube. So uh, we'll make it very easy for you folks. And and also, Sarah, thank you for, for obviously helping uh, paint the picture here uh, in terms of what we've seen over the past few years, what we're likely to see uh, going ahead. And obviously, it's a conversation we will continue to focus on, and that being said, folks, if you enjoyed today's episode, well, number one, please go ahead and give it a share, Uh, but number two, if you did enjoy today's episode, then you're going to love our uh, past few episodes we had here. Now, I haven't been on YouTube in a couple days, reason being, I was over on another program in Liberty and Health. Uh, We talked about how we can go ahead and fix the broken libertarian messaging, and then most recently on my program on Monday, we had our good friend Tim McMaster, We asked, why is this libertarian farmer running for lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania? Interested? Don't worry. I have that video popping up right here below us in the show notes. But with that being said, folks, if you enjoyed the episode one more time, go ahead and give it a share. But it's Brian Nichols signing off here on The Brian Nichols Show for Professor Sarah Burns. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com. Forget to tell your friends to subscribe too. Follow me on social media at liberty And again, if you'd be so kind, please consider making a donation to The Brian Nichols Show at briannicholshow.com forward slash support. The Brian Nichols Show is supported by viewers like you. Thank you to our patrons, Daryl Schmitz, Michael Lima, Mitchell Mankiewicz, Cody Johns, Craig DeCasta, and the We Are Libertarians Network. Faced with an uncertain future, many business owners and technology professionals don't have the time needed to invest in their business technology strategies. And as a result, they're afraid of their technology getting out and putting their company and customers information at risk the digital future is already here but with all different choices in the marketplace it's difficult to know which one will be the best fit for you and your strategic vision imagine having the peace of mind that your business is backed by the right technology investments that are tailored for your specific need hi I'm Brian Nichols and I've helped countless business owners and technology professionals just like you helping you make informed decisions about what technologies are best to invest in for your business voice bandwidth cybersecurity business continuity juggling all the aspects of business technology is messy let me help head to Show.com forward slash help and sign up for a free one-on-one consultation with yours truly to dig deep into where you see your company heading and how we can align your business technology towards those goals again that's Show.com forward slash help to get your simplified business technology started today